This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And I'm Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. And Ben, we're down to the last few hours of the Obama administration. Uh, President-elect Trump will be President Trump before too long. And uh, there are a lot of questions out there, nothing but questions about what the new president will, will do. And a few of them certainly are about housing. Yeah, and I, I think we're waiting to see um, a lot of things about Trump nominations, including his housing secretary nominee, Ben Carson, who has very little background in housing, but will probably get confirmed. Um, so what's, what, what, are, what is a rundown of those big housing questions with, that the federal government will be answering or not answering? I mean, uh, they run the gamut. I mean, certainly, you know, if they get into tax reform, what happens to the mortgage interest uh, deduction? Uh, to here in the city, especially, public housing is a big one. Um, public housing has not enjoyed particularly strong funding under Presidents Bush or Obama, but, you know, it's obviously on the brink of a financial crisis here. It's not just a question about the day-to-day -day operating funds. It's the capital expenses. Uh, and also, you know, the rules um, that affect what public housing can do. You know, there are these experimental programs like uh, rental assistance demonstration and, uh, and others that NYCHA has tapped into, sometimes kind of creating rules specific to New York to avoid um, taking out policies that would be problematic here about, you know, removing people or evicting people. Um, not just the money, but what will the rules coming from, from Washington be? Uh, I think that's true also of Section 8, uh, home funds, other money that goes directly into building privately owned affordable housing. And then on the legal side, there's this affirmatively furthering fair housing rule that Ben Carson himself has called out directly, which is a rule that requires jurisdictions that are getting federal housing money to assess what they're doing to break down traditional um, uh, segregation barriers. Um, lingering effects of, of residential segregation discrimination in the past. Uh, that affects suburban areas perhaps more than New York City, but certainly here there have been people who've raised questions about does affordable housing you know, reinforce segregation? Um, and I think you know, whether that rule uh, continues to apply and how it's applied here is another one of the question marks. I think uh, you just said on a few things that are really important to, to dig into a little bit further and maybe maybe today, maybe another time. One is talking about um, affordable housing and segregation. There's city and state policies that we need to discuss and maybe we can come back to in this conversation about 421A and other programs that are aimed at saying, well, we don't just want affordable housing sort of in the outer boroughs or in poor neighborhoods. We want to make sure that we have mixed income housing in wealthier neighborhoods and, and what's at stake there. Uh, speaking of Ben Carson and federal policy, though, not only has Ben Carson said what you what you just said he he has about fair housing, but also he has basically said in his confirmation hearing the best thing you can do for someone on public assistance is get them off of it. And I wonder, looking at funding for public housing, how he might approach the idea of privatization or how a Trump administration will approach incentivizing privatization of public housing and what kind of position that might put New York City in. And New York City is always in a strange position, increasingly so in the public housing conversation, just because we're such an outlier. You know, it's the oldest system, it's the largest, um, but it has remained more or less intact. They've lost very few units as most large cities have destroyed public housing, have, you know, reduced it through Hope 6 and replaced it with Section 8, um, knockdowns and, and defunding and pri privatizing. And that, that hasn't happened here. And so what that means is not only are we sort of politically isolated, but 
you know, just the, the context here is so different from what might, it, you might make an argument that some of that stuff would work in other places, or that, or that public housing could truly be treated as temporary in other cities. Here it has a very different meaning. It's where people live maybe for generations, and that's just the way it is. Um, so yeah, I think that that mindset, which is a very familiar Republican mindset about, you know, um, uh, what impact uh, a social safety net and, and kind of public spending has on people's you know, work and their approach to how they organize their lives. Um, that's familiar, uh, but we're now in a position with a president and a Congress that might be more open in the, than in the past to actually implementing it. Yeah, and even on a smaller scale, I think you mentioned rules, uh, you know, along those same lines is the idea of, you know, the, a smoking ban in NYCHA and enforcement of that and what that looks like and sort of this balance of uh, public uh, benefits, public subsidies to people, and how you move people into, you know, where you want them to head, that you don't want people necessarily to live in public housing for generations or for, you know, decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and the overlap, too, with, with other policy issues, right? Like, NYCHA was particularly hard hit by Sandy. And, you know, of all the systems in the city that need to become more resilient, uh, NYCHA is one of them. Uh, and that was proven uh, when that storm hit. The administration has signaled that it does not believe climate change is a real thing. Um, and in the past, Republicans have resisted uh, even spending money to defend against sea level rise. You know, will that affect resiliency efforts, not just broadly in the city, but at NYCHA too? And I think, you know, many of these systems that we've talked about in these podcasts are affected by a host of different policies. And Donald Trump is going to affect just, could affect just about all of them. I think you hit on something important, which is that, you know, NYCHA's so much the exception around the country and you know you even see rules being written by the federal government where New York City needs to be exempted right and that New York City needs exceptions whether it comes to certain housing rules or funding allocations that you just don't see needed elsewhere and I think that although there's going to be a very interesting tension I think in a Trump administration between the fact that Donald Trump is a New York City guy and the fact, though, that you have an administration that I think is largely going to be hostile to urban centers in, in certain ways and, you know, you know, sort of bastions of elitism as New York City is often, you know, seen by, I think, many of the people that are going to make up the Trump administration, even Trump himself in some ways. And I think part of that tension, too, is public housing is a perfect example. For the past 10 or 20 years, maybe longer than that, the discussion about public housing in New York has always gone to, we need more support from the federal government. You know, we don't want to be left on our own. Uh, We can't do this on our own. And some of us have had conversations where we've asked whether that is a realistic hope. And in fact, maybe New York City does need to do it on its own. Well, lo and behold, now we have a switch where not only is the money unlikely to come from Washington, but maybe some other policies, some rules, some dictates that we don't like. It could be that New York City goes from sort of realizing it may have to fix public housing on its own to hoping that God is given the chance to do that uh, because they don't want to have to abide by what Ben Carson's and Donald Trump's and, and other folks in Washington's are saying because the philosophy is so at odds with the values here. Well, I think I think that's absolutely right, but I, and I also think that New York City has already been heading in this direction a little bit, right? That the, the funding from the federal government has been reduced and the need has been so great that with the next generation NYCHA plan that the de Blasio administration released a couple of years ago, 
they sort of said, yes, we continue to need a lot of money from the federal government, but we also have to start being more creative in terms of how we address these issues. We need to tighten up some of our operations, which is aside from the funding issues in many ways. But we also need to f figure out how we can utilize some of our land better and, and some of the things we you know need to do to um, you know survive and advance without an increase in federal funding. That's right, and there are parallels. You mentioned next-gen NYCHA and the development of NYCHA property for mixed-income or 100% affordable housing. Uh, there are parallels elsewhere here in the city within the de Blasio housing plan. You know, uh, the use of mandatory inclusionary housing zoning as a way of creating funding for affordable housing without relying on funds from the federal government or low-income housing tax credits or the other things which traditionally fuel that. Uh, and that actually is an interesting point to touch on because the city has recently been updating us on progress so far under the plan and the report is anyway that at least in terms of numbers it's more or less uh, on pace. Yeah, the, the de Blasio administration has this 200,000 units of affordable housing over 10 years and three years into the administration, um, you know, they are, they say they're on pace. They have, uh, the goal is 80,000 units of new affordable housing and when we say affordable housing here we're talking about you know, certain rent caps that relate to income levels, but they vary widely. Um, and 120,000 preserved units, which means extending those rent caps, extending those affordability requirements. Um, and the plan is heavier on preservation. The accomplishments so far have been proportionally even heavier in preservation. And some of that was buoyed by big deals like Stuyvesant Town. Um, but the administration is very happy with what they're doing. They're happy that they've been doing it without uh, 421A, a state you know level program uh, for tax breaks for including affordable housing in, in market rate development. Uh, and so you know they're they're pleased with where they're going. However, there's a lot of uncertainty both from the state and federal level for the city. And the city is now seeing uh, some big shakeups in the leadership of their housing plan, as well as questions about upcoming rezonings of neighborhoods, which is are, are supposed to include new affordable housing and the, the futures of those. So there's a lot of big questions while they're making progress, while the mayor's heading into a re-election year. It's a fascinating time in the city. It certainly is. And I think, you know, referencing the departure of uh, Vicki Bean from HPD and Carl Weisbrot from city planning, the latter one, uh, a, a shift that has been foreseen for a while, people thought that would probably happen. Um, the HPD chief won uh, a little more of a surprise to some of us. Um, and what we've heard from people that we've talked to is people don't really know what that means. That's part of the uncertainty, I think, is that it's not clear what those changes reflect uh, in terms of why they occurred exactly. Um, and it's not clear what uh, effect that will have on the plan and how it is carried out to these to neighborhoods, the rezoning plans and, and you know, the discussions that will begin in earnest very soon in a few places in the Euler process and through the EIS process. Uh, I think one thing that's interesting in terms of you know, de Blasio's approach in some way that insulates him on issues like this is he is known to be, I think it's fair to say, kind of a micromanager. Um, you know, he pays a lot of attention to the individual moves that, that these folks make. And unlike previous mayors, um, they don't have a lot of sort of personal latitude. So it could be that not much changes very much at all because the, the stamp that we see on what's happened at this point is really Bill de Blasio's stamp more than Vicky Beaner or Carl Weisbrot. And even right under de Blasio, the deputy mayor for housing is Alicia Glenn, and she's not leaving at least at this point. So she's going to continue to oversee the new head at HPD, the new you know director of city planning. 
And, you know, the city planning chief will be really instrumental and is not going to be a Carl Weisbrod because there's only one Carl Weisbrod who's been around for so many years and done so much in city government and city planning and housing. Um, but the city planning chief will be responsible for shepherding through these neighborhood rezonings. And that'll be, I think, really interesting to see if those go smoothly because there's already been hiccups with those. Uh, and I know you at City Limits are following those very closely and you know keeping us updated on, on the progress there. Uh, but that'll be fascinating to watch. Definitely, yeah. Especially we're coming up uh, in April, the anniversary of the first the rezonings to go through in East New York, and people there and elsewhere are looking at you know um, what has happened on some of the deliverables, the promises the city made. There's a new mechanism that the city council approved to track that stuff, um, trying to figure out what has happened on the ground so far. And it, it's there's an interesting intellectual conversation going on, and we're hopefully a part of fostering it about. What has the impact? What will the impact of these rezonings be? You know, and this debate that's been going on about whether rezonings uh, foment displacement or help to reduce the pressure that displaces people. Um, the administration makes claims that generally defend rezonings. Advocates make plain claims that kind of um, blame rezonings. The evidence is is pretty mixed because it's always hard to prove the counterfactual. Right. What we do know is that. You know, most of the neighborhoods where that are targeted for rezonings are low-income neighborhoods of color, and so if there are risks being borne in accepting a rezoning, those are the folks who are accepting those risks. I think you, you capture it really well, and you know, I think what we've seen in the one rezoning that's gone through under de Blasio is I think we've seen an example in East New York of where the city process accelerated rising housing prices and land speculation there and is making East New York more of a destination because of the investments the city is putting in it and the rezoning that allows for, you know, different types of building and different height and improvements to the neighborhood. On the other side of the equation, I think what's uh, coming down the pike in East Harlem might be the other side of the equation, right? That, that, um, that housing prices were already going fairly crazy there and the rezoning might be a way to harness that a bit and ensure more affordability. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't have those answers, but to me it seems like it's a mixed bag and it depends on where the neighborhood is at when they come in to rezone. That's true. In a few neighborhoods, uh, at least some evidence of local leadership being the driving force behind the rezoning. I mean, in Bushwick, that's a process that began there. I think as a response to feeling like they were the, the last, basically last area in Brooklyn that could feel the, the displacement gentrification wave. Um, that's true in Gowanus as well. Chinatown's had this interesting back and forth with the administration about how big a rezoning de Blasio will contemplate. So yeah, the process has been different by neighborhood, and I think the approach by the administration has been more careful as time has gone on because of that speculation um, on threat. And, you know, recently, a couple months ago, we did a story about what the next neighborhood might be for rezoning, and people were very careful about pointing that finger because they didn't want to trigger speculation that would make the situation or change facts on the ground before rezoning even occurs. Right. And it's clear from, you know, recent conversations, including, you know, press conference with the mayor and his team, where they were celebrating their housing numbers, that, you know, an area of Staten Island is, is moving along, that East Harlem is moving along, but other places have, you know, like Flushing that we already knew have slowed down. So I think it's going to be fascinating to see, and this was a question I asked the mayor and his team at a recent press conference, was are these rezonings moving along at the pace that you thought, or are you sort of having to really recalibrate here? And, you know, they sort of gave 
a deflecting answer of every every rezoning has its own process and takes its own time and of course things change and things move in different directions some will move slower some will move faster but there's a lot that re remains to be seen and one question is the months of 2017 tick by is when those yielder processes begin in different neighborhoods how will that intertwine with the election calendar you know where you have open races or you have people who are uh, running for city council and might be in a position to make that decision as a candidate or as when they when they're when they're sworn in um, will there be a real crossover between the discussion about rezonings and the uh, the election the campaign conversation in different areas that's that's a big question too now the question the question we've asked I think it feels like most of our adult lives at this point is what is happening with 421a in Albany yeah, the governor announced that he has a new 4208 deal between the real estate lobby and the building trades unions because that was the sticking point about union labor and and making sure that uh, those numbers were settled. So the governor announced that there was a deal. He's putting that to the legislature. He's putting it to the legislature with a whole host of other proposals as well as his new budget. And so we'll see. Uh, we'll see if that's something that might get acted on before the budget at the end of March or with the budget at the end of March. Um, the governor also indicated that now with a new 421A deal in place, he wants the state Senate, who, you know, he said the state Senate Republicans were holding up release of nearly $2 billion in affordable housing money that had been allocated in last year's budget uh, to release it through a memorandum of understanding and actually get some of that money flowing much of it into New York City. So in early 2017, we're seeing a few signs of possible movement, both with the 420A program and this additional funding uh, from the state. Um, where that heads, you know, Albany is, is a strange, strange place, so I don't think we can be certain at all. <laughs> uh Final thought is, I think, you know, we're, uh, as I said, a few hours for the Trump presidency, a major moment in American history. Clearly the question is, do you have predictions for the AFC and NFC championship games this weekend? I, I predict that the Patriots will probably do a lot better than uh, most people want them to do. Thank goodness. <laughs>